Hi everyone, today's reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 50. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Heal king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, Uni Church. This is, God willing, the last time we'll be doing this, not in person, but from next weekend onwards, we're going to be in person. There'll be a service here at half past seven for Uni Church on Good Friday evening, as we remember using bread and wine, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. And then on Sunday evening, Uni Church, Easter Day evening, we'll be gathered together here again at half past seven um, to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It'll be fantastic to see you here. Thank you for bearing with us over these number of weeks. We look forward to seeing you in person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that at this time of the year, we can think particularly about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we will grasp these great events, these momentous events, these center point of history events Lord, we pray that we may grasp them afresh. Father, we pray that we would hear your word, not only hear it, but obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for some, it's a matter of enjoyment. For others, it's a matter of cringe. Whenever you hear it, you may recognize it, or whenever you hear it, you may not recognize it. Some smile when they hear it, and some indeed get a sense of satisfaction when they speak it. What am I talking about? Well, irony. The formal definition of irony is this. 
the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous or emphatic event. For example, don't go overboard with the gratitude, he rejoined with heavy ironry. Walking into an empty theatre and asking, it's too crowded. Stating during a snowstorm, beautiful weather we're having here. The marriage counsellor divorcing his third wife. A fire station that burns down. Quite often, never a truer word is said when in jest. A joke with a jag. Maybe you've given those out or maybe you've been the recipient of them. Irony can be vicious, it can be nasty, it can be bitter, but it always ends up clarifying where you hear the truth from the opposite. We're in Matthew chapter 27 as we head towards Jesus' death on the cross. We're thinking about this particularly because we're coming up to Easter weekend, Good Friday, Easter Day, and we're reminding ourselves of the magnitude of what happened. 2,000 years ago for us. And in Matthew's gospel, he's been outlining just exactly who Jesus is and why he has come, his mission, his purpose, his raison d'etre. And we've arrived at the moment of his crucifixion. We're in Matthew chapter 7. It'd be great if you had a Bible in front of you. But what you notice about the end part of this chapter from verse 27 through to verse 50 is that everything is spoken in irony. Those who speak the things do not realize fully exactly what they're saying. And Matthew very carefully uses those words to tell us the truth. What they're saying is the unintended truth. Jesus is now a threat to the ruling class, both the religious and the secular authority, both the Jews and the Romans. Jesus is a threat to them. They resent Jesus' popularity, and Jesus threatens their power. So Jesus is through a kangaroo court, and he's been declared to be guilty, and he's been found towards execution, crucifixion. This trial of Jesus, this mock trial of Jesus, has only one outcome, and that is death. So let's have a look. We're in Matthew chapter 27. Have you got a Bible nearby you? Verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of it and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. In crucifixions, it was customary to scourge. It was customary to mock. It was part of the process, part of the humiliation process. But this is a step further. What you've got here is barrack room humor. You see it, don't you? The robe the crown, the healing. Not one of those things is intended to convey the truth that Jesus is actually the King. 
In fact, the man who is mocked as king, and this is where the irony comes in, the man who is mocked as king is the king. We know this from the rest of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is from kingly stock. He stretches right back, and we see that in his veins, blue blood courses. He is a king. He speaks as a king. He calls people to repentance. He says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is here. He identifies himself as the king. He is from kingly stock. He is the king. But these soldiers who mock him as king don't realize it. They don't realize that standing in front of them is the one who has made everything, the one who is the rightful ruler over everything. We see it from the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel and the concluding chapters of Matthew's gospel. The only conclusion that you can come to is that this man is king, but he's mocked as king. He's humiliated as king. It was part of the process. It is part of God's process. The Son of Man is to be rejected. And this is part of his rejection. The Son of Man has come to die. And this is part of his death. The man who is mocked as king is the king. Let's read on. We'll see and hear more irony. Verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. There's an utter powerlessness in crucifixion. You're beaten, beaten senseless, and then nailed to a beam. You're forced to carry the crossbeam of your cross. But essentially, crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. You go through all of the scourging, you go through all of the physical torment, and then you die through lack of breath. You see, you're strung up on the cross, and you find it difficult to breathe. You gasp for air, and that is how you die. Hence, for others, their legs are broken to speed up the process of death. So here we see and we read of Jesus being strung up on the cross. He's forced to carry the crossbar, but then, of course, he is so broken physically, he's not able to. Verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. The absolute futility, the absolute shame, the absolute horror, the unending pain of crucifixion. Romans had three forms of capital punishment. 
This form of capital punishment was reserved for the worst of criminals, slaves, saves, rebels, the treasonous. They were to die by this means. No Roman citizen was to die by crucifixion. It was such an embarrassment, such a shame. But Jesus, Jesus dies this way for us. He looks powerless, doesn't he? He's described as powerless, doesn't he? He looks as if he is entirely broken, doesn't he? And everyone around him points this out. You are broken, they said. Have a look. If you have a look, verse 32, sorry, verse 38, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. These great ironic statements towards Jesus. These great statements, if you are the so powerful one, why do you look so powerless? Jesus, of course, had said about the temple, meaning, and from John's gospel, meaning his body, meaning resurrection, that it would be rebuilt. The temple would be destroyed. The temple of his body would be destroyed and then rebuilt three days later. And of course, they've picked up on this and they're insulting Jesus, using Jesus' words back to him. If you are so powerful, if you are so powerful, Jesus, save yourself. You see this, verse 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple, build it in three days, save yourself. Save yourself, Jesus. This ignominious hanging powerfully bringing about the restoration of the temple, his body. In resurrection, Jesus is the one who hangs there in powerlessness. But he is powerful. We know that Jesus is God. We know that God created everything. We know that Jesus raised the dead. We know that Jesus multiplied bread and fish we know that Jesus calmed the storms. We know that Jesus' authority, his rulership is over his creation. He is powerful. But at this very moment, he looks powerless. And they continue to insult him. The soldiers, what are the right above him? This is the king of the Jews. An entirely sarcastic, ironic description of this man about to die on a cross. So, the one who is powerless is powerful. We know the end of the story. We know that he doesn't stay in the grave, that he rises three days later. As you read to the end of the story, you'll see that clearly. He rises from the grave triumphantly. So, the man who is mocked as king is the king. The one who appears powerless is powerful. Then the man who can't save himself saves others. Let me read verses 41 and 42. 
In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. You see, this scourging continues by the words of the religious. The words of the religious are such, I mean, such a clear description of exactly what is going on here. Jesus is refusing to save himself, but in the process of not saving himself, he saves others. He saved others, they said, verse 42, but he can't save himself. Little do they know that this is the way that he will save others. See, his name, Jesus, his name means Savior, means rescuer. His loss of life brings life to others. His death means eternal life. He refuses to save himself because the very means by which he will save others is through his own loss of self. You see, we were told, aren't we, from the very opening words of Matthew's gospel, Jesus means that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is not lacking in the power to do it. I mean, Jesus could have come off the cross. Angels could have come and rescued him. Instead, it wasn't his will to do it. This was the purpose of his death, for the salvation, for the saving of others. The man who can't save himself saves others. Then finally, the man who cries out in despair trusts God. Listen to these words. Verse number 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the seventh hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The contemporary reading of these words of Jesus are psychological. Has my mission gone wrong somehow? Have I made the wrong decisions, the wrong choices? Have I regretted? Has Jesus taken a wrong turn and he's ended up in this disaster? Well, no, what is happening? He cries out with this voice, a loud voice, a loud strained voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They think it's Jesus calling for Elijah because of the strained voice owing to death by asphyxiation, remember? The Eloi, Eloi of my God, my God, sounds like to them, Elijah, Elijah, he's calling out for the prophet. 
to them, it doesn't make sense. They hear of the despairing Jesus. But actually, what is going on here is Jesus is quoting a psalm, Psalm number 22. It begins with those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But does it stop there? Does it stop at forsakenness? No. If you read right through the psalm, where does it go? It goes to rejoicing. It goes to hope. It goes to rescue. It goes to resurrection. Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Jesus' mouth? is actually an expression of hope. But what is going on here? Why does Jesus feel this abandonment, this banishment? It is because at this very moment, he is bearing our sin. He is bearing our sin and being cut off so that you and I can be united to the true and the living God. The barrier removed, our sin removed, our sin paid for, the sacrifice made. Jesus dies on the cross instead of us and for us. And does he give up at this point in despair? No. He trusts in God. So Jesus is beginning a psalm. He's quoting from the first verse of Psalm number 22, which ends up in this rejoicing, in this confident rejoicing that he will be rescued. And again, when you turn to the final pages of Matthew's gospel, you will see that rescue. You will see that triumphant rescue. So Jesus, the man who cries out in despair, trusts God. Now, all of this may seem to be a bit distant. All of this may seem to be a bit academic, a bit theological, but it's absolutely practical and personal. Because this Jesus is the one who dies for you. This Jesus is the one who gives up his own life for us. This Jesus is the one who saves us from our sin. This Jesus is the one who cries out in despair but trusting in God, this Jesus is our Savior. You see, this is why it's intensely personal. The question this Easter and every Easter, the question every day is that the one who died for your sin is your Savior. The question is, have you recognized him as such? Have you said, Lord Jesus, please save me? Have you said, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying instead of me, for bearing my sin the full weight? When you hear those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the weight of your sin on Jesus, on the sins of the whole world pouring down on Jesus' shoulder. He dies bearing them. This was his will. He went willingly and deliberately to the cross. He came to this earth to die for your sin so that you can be saved, that you can be rescued, so you can be made right with God. This is why Jesus came. Now, do you know him as your Savior? You see, 
those around him called him a king, but they didn't treat him as a king. Those around him called him king, but they didn't recognize him as a king. They insulted him. They scourged him. There are times, I guess, within the life of any church, those who will pay lip service to Jesus as Lord. They will say, Jesus is Lord. They will sing, Jesus is Lord. But do those individuals mean that Jesus is Lord? That Jesus is their Lord? Do they mean that? It's very possible to hear this stuff year after year after year and not recognize for yourself that Jesus is Lord. When you read the story, when you hear what happened, there's no other conclusion other than to say, Lord Jesus, please be my ruler. Please save me from my sin. Please forgive me for that sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Maybe that's what you want to say to the Lord Jesus on this Palm Sunday. As we begin this week thinking particularly about the cross of Jesus in gratitude, maybe you want to start this week by saying, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. You see, that's what we need to do if we're going to be right with God. And it's simple. It's a matter of simply believing, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, saying sorry for your sin, and bowing the knee to him who is the ruler. Why don't you do that with me right now? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sin. Thank you so much for dying on the cross instead of me for my sin. Thank you that you were raised from the grave to be the ruler and Lord of all. Please be my Lord. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for these incredible truths about this incredible man. We pray that we would hear them and acknowledge that he is the one who died for our sins and was raised again to be Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.